Hello, and welcome to Fresh Fusion, a once again weekly show where we discuss the business, the art, the ethics of content creation on the open web. My name is Jared White, and this is episode 81. Who gives a toot? Mastodon, Mastodon, Mastodon. (laughs) Are we getting sick of Mastodon yet? Well, I'm not. Uh, This show is going to be about Mastodon and a lot of other social media related news. Uh, Hopefully something that will pique your curiosity or help you solve a problem. But first, before we get into all of that, if you're new here to the show, welcome. I actually started this podcast in May 2018. (laughs) And here we are. I haven't even gotten to its 100th episode yet because that's how I roll. (laughs) Uh, I haven't been super consistent in publishing, truth be told. But I've decided to commit to changing all that and making this a true weekly show. Yes, weekly show. But that's not all. In addition to this show indeed going weekly, Uh, Coming soon, there will be Fresh Fusion Plus. I am launching a group membership where uh, there will essentially be a longer version of the show uh, where we'll have additional tips and tricks, Q&A, et cetera, et cetera. Um, I'm also planning to, for both the free and the longer Fresh Fusion Plus shows uh, it features some interviews with other creators and people of interest in the space of the Fediverse, um, content creation on the web, and all of that good stuff. Uh, so uh, yeah, a, a lot is going to be happening as we head into the next year, uh, and you're going to be uh, hearing a lot more from me. <laughs> so hopefully that's a good thing. In the meantime, prior to this membership launching, if you'd like to support the show, please head over to buymeacoffee.com slash Jared White. That's buymeacoffee.com slash Jared White, where you can send in your tips and help buy me a coffee to show your appreciation for the show. Uh, I'd also ask you to please, please go over to jaredwhite.com slash subscribe. That's jaredwhite.com slash subscribe, where you can sign up for my email newsletter, creator class. And also, I should tell you that uh, with this group membership that will soon be launching, there will be bonus newsletter issues for subscribers. So, um, so the main issues of creator class will remain free, but there will be a bonus issue every month for, uh, for subscribers of our membership. So uh, stay tuned for that. All right, folks, with all that out of the way, we can get started with the show. And I'm actually going to start with some follow-up, because all the way back in February 2019, I recorded an episode, Five Predictions for Social Media in 2019. And, well, it's not 2019 anymore, but... Many of my predictions are at last coming true. (laughs) So uh, a link in the show notes to that podcast if you're interested, but I'll recap what those predictions were and what I got right eventually and what is still to be determined. Uh, So first of all, uh, my first prediction was that, uh, and I quote, some kind of site that does social networking type stuff 
is going to interoperate with the rest of the federated social networking universe using ActivityPub or something along those lines. Uh, and I expressed the hope that uh, that social network-ish service would be Flickr that would uh, decide to join with the uh, federated social networking across the web. Now, both Tumblr and Flickr have publicly declared, or at least the CEOs have publicly declared that they are actively looking into enabling ActivityPub and joining the Fediverse. What does this mean? <laughs> it means that in theory, in the not so distant future, uh, folks using Tumblr, folks using Flickr would be able to follow people on other services like Mastodon, uh, PixelFed, et cetera, et cetera. And uh, folks on those other services would be able to follow people on Tumblr or Flickr, and there would be cross-sharing of comments and likes and all that kind of stuff, as we have come to expect in this new world. This is very, very exciting, <laughs> also very scary, because uh, if, if you're concerned about scaling issues with uh, how much growth we've seen on Mastodon in particular over the last few months, um, that's nothing compared to if Tumblr and or Flickr <laughs> join the Fediverse and federate with all these instances. Um, but uh, it, it truly is exciting to see that there is active movement in this direction. All right, my prediction number two was that in 2019, uh, Mastodon would double in size. In other words, at the end of 2019, all the different Mastodon instances out there collectively would have twice the number of accounts as they did at the beginning of the year. Um, I don't believe I ever followed up on that prediction, so uh, I looked it up. I found a site called Fediverse.Party, and they've been doing sort of a recap of the networks uh, over the last few years. You know, and at the end of each year, they do a recap. And in 2019, started out with about 2,500 users and got to roughly four... Sorry, did I say that right? Let me try that again. Uh, start out with... 2,500,000 users, <laughs> that's better, uh, 2,500,000 users and got to roughly 4,300,000 users. So that wasn't quite a two times growth, but uh, close enough. I would say I mostly got that prediction right. Unfortunately, uh, growth virtually stalled in 2020 and in 2021. Um, that was also when I unfortunately kind of fizzled out myself and stopped using Mastodon and went back to Twitter, I'm ashamed to say, as presumably uh, some other folks did as well. However, uh, I think there are a couple specific reasons for that stalled growth, and obviously we're seeing a total change now, which I'll get to in a moment. Uh, but my theory is that uh, between the pandemic in 2020 and then all the crazy election stuff that was happening in also in 2020 heading into 2021, it, it, like that truly was Twitter's moment, right? Like it seemed like everything was happening on Twitter, like watching all the riots, trying to get news about the pandemic, trying to figure out what's going on with Trump. And and then, you know, January, uh, you know, the uh, I'm already forgetting what the date is. 
holy moly, uh, 6th, January 6th, <laughs> the January 6th uh, incident in uh, Washington, D.C. in 2021. Uh, like, it seemed like all of that stuff was happening, like, quote unquote, on Twitter. Like, Twitter became the place to get all of this crazy news. Uh, so I think it was really keeping people on Twitter then. Uh, so, you know, so Twitter, for better or for worse, had its moment. And that led to sort of a, a you know, a memoriam on <laughs> growth in the Fediverse there. Um, but now that's totally changing. So we'll get to that. All right. My third prediction in 2019 was that I predicted that big creators would launch a rival video service and ditch YouTube. I sort of predicted Nebula. (laughs) And the crazy thing is Nebula actually launched in 2019, only a few months after I had recorded my prediction. Uh, So... I could claim victory here, except that what I said was that creators would ditch YouTube in favor of a rival video service. And I even speculated that Casey Neistat could do that and like take a huge number of his followers with him to this new service. What actually happened was that Nebula just became sort of a premium content add-on to YouTube, right? Like all these creators on YouTube with pretty large followings essentially just told everyone, hey, subscribe to me on Nebula and you'll get, you know, extra stuff and ad-free and this and that, right? So, so Nebula is sort of services on top of YouTube. It's not a total replacement for YouTube. But again, like it was early 2019, I thought creators were <laughs> were getting fed up with being completely shackled to YouTube and the algorithm and you know whatever monetization strategy they could come up with there and needed to do something different. And I think we've seen that happen with Nebula. I'm actually surprised there aren't more Nebulas, if you will, out there already. Um, but I think it's only a matter of time. Unfortunately, I did not get my fourth prediction right. <laughs> <laughs> Prediction number four was uh, I speculated that uh, federal legislation in the United States would finally pass to directly challenge um, the data collection habits of Facebook and a lot of these other companies, you know, that were just you know, ingesting ridiculous amounts of user data and doing all this nefarious stuff. Uh, We didn't really see that happen, but we have seen increasing legislation elsewhere around the world outside of America and certain states in America. For example, California have been increasingly cracking down on privacy and, and protecting user data and requiring consent and all this different stuff. And probably one of the most fatal blows to Facebook in particular is everything Apple's done around its own privacy policies and you know, showing prompts to users to get consent before, uh, you know, a lot of user data can be collected for advertisers. And anyway, I, I think we're seeing the the slow demise of this ability for, uh, for, you know, the Facebooks of the world to just collect insane amounts of raw data and exploit that. Um, but I do wish that there would be uh, real legislation at the federal level here in the United States to uh, truly crack down on all of this stuff. Uh, frankly, we need a lot more legislation around tech in general. That's my opinion. Um, and uh, data collection and privacy is just one aspect of that. 
Anywho, let's go on to my fifth and last prediction that I made for social media in 2019. Um, And I think I got this pretty right, including the last thing I said. So I'll just read the direct quote here and you be the judge. So I predicted that, quote, Twitter will actually do reasonably well. They'll just keep on doing what they do, making strange UI choices, annoying people. But overall, I think Twitter will just be Twitter for better or for worse, and people will use it who want to use it. It might not grow a lot, but I don't think it'll shrink a lot. I think it'll just kind of chug along. It's one of those things where Twitter is definitely too big to fail. So unless they do anything really stupid, it will just be what it is. Let me say that last sentence again. So, unless they do anything really stupid, it will just be what it is. So, that was in 2019. And yes, Twitter kept on chugging along, kept on chugging along in 2020, kept on chugging along in 2021, (laughs) still making strange choices, still annoying people, kind of just, you know, getting by. And then we get to this year, And we get to Elon. (laughs) So unless Twitter does anything really stupid, dot, dot, dot. Well, yes, (laughs) Twitter finally did something really stupid. It got acquired by Elon Musk. (laughs) Oh, my God. Um, I just published a new essay up on jaredwhite.com, which I titled The Elongated Man, (laughs) Uh, reference to the DC Comics character, The Elongated Man, uh, but this is The Elongated Man, Uh, and that's also a reference to uh, (laughs) Elon's wacky humor, where uh, this is many, many months ago, but he tweeted something like, if there's ever a scandal surrounding me, uh, people should call it Elon Gate. <laughs> ha 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 ha. Uh, well, folks, here we go. Elon Gate is here. <laughs> um, man, I, I'm really going to refrain from talking much about Twitter and what Elon's doing over there because it's all so ridiculous and so pathetic and so absurd that I don't even know what to say about it anymore. Uh, It's it's like watching a slow train wreck where the train is like (laughs) miles long and you're just in like in slow motion seeing one car after another, you know, jump off the tracks, go flying in random directions, Clothes from suitcases are flying through the air. Like (laughs) the food cart is (laughs) depositing pasta sandwiches and coffee all over the ground. Like (laughs) it's the worst train wreck ever. Oh my gosh, it's so ridiculous. But uh, (laughs) yeah, Um, thankfully we have an alternative. We have the Fediverse. We have open web-based social networking. Uh, we have platforms like Mastodon, which are, you know, essentially just a collection of servers that people are running, uh, installing this open source software on and allowing people to uh, to sign up. And it's really been interesting to see just how many 
people, you know, who have come, and we're talking millions of people now, millions of new users just in a short amount of time, uh, basically refugees from Twitter. Um, So many people coming to this conclusion of like, wow, like life can be different online. (laughs) We don't need to be shackled to these awful corporate media platforms and these awful algorithms. Like we can do things differently. Uh, And I'm just going to read you one of many, 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 many posts I've seen just in the last few weeks. Uh, This one's from Cheryl uh, Kirschenbaum. Hope I'm pronouncing that right. And Cheryl says, having now been on Mastodon for one month, a few observations. Mastodon makes me realize how much the Twitter algorithm maximized user outrage to boost engagement for profit. Gross. Here, my feed is interesting and supportive. There's a culture of kindness, at least so far. It's extremely appealing and should be normalized on and offline. Beyond reactions to toots, people share songs, poetry, and ask great questions. I can't remember the last time I found social media to be fun. So yeah, Cheryl, I completely agree. I find social media to be uh, shockingly more pleasurable and enjoyable and fun now uh, that I am off Twitter. And and folks, just so you know, I, I truly am off Twitter. Uh, I have not deleted my account yet. And I still log into Twitter a little bit every day simply to try to find more people I can follow through Mastodon uh, and and essentially unfollow them on Twitter. Um, and I'm just, you know, one by one unfollowing everyone on Twitter. <laughs> uh, and then I'll close down my account. So I'm done. Done with Twitter for good. Uh, there's no way I'm going back. Absolutely no chance whatsoever at this point. Uh, it, it's completely destroyed for me. The, the brand is tarnished forevermore, just like Facebook for me, uh, just like Instagram. Uh, there, there's nothing Facebook could do to get me to rejoin Facebook. Uh, and now there's nothing Twitter could do to get me to rejoin Twitter. Uh, so that is what it is. Um, but yeah, it, it's it's truly remarkable. I, I feel like... Uh, it's hard not to sound like I'm waxing nostalgic, um, you know, I and I really don't want to sound like I'm, you know, back in my day, back in the early days of the blogosphere, blah, blah, blah. Like, <laughs> I, I don't have any interest in, in trying to, you know, recreate some mythical past. But it is true that in the early days of blogging, there, there was a sense of community around being a blogger. People writing posts on a blog over here would link to a post on a blog over there. And not just a link, but like almost like having a conversation. And then the other blog would be notified somehow of that link, uh, you know, possibly through emails or whatever, like, hey, I liked your post and I linked to it, check this out. Maybe, you know, it'd go in a comment or something, I don't know. And then, and then the other blog would write something and respond, and you had almost a social network emerging just through blogging. And that's why it was called the blogosphere, because there was this sense of camaraderie, like, hey, we're all in this together. We're all bloggers. We're linking to each other. We're reinforcing each other. And sure, not all of that was good. (laughs) Some blogs were toxic. Some blogs spread a bunch of garbage. But, 
you know, by and large, there were a lot of really cool people doing a lot of cool blogs that, uh, you know, were all kind of uh, socializing with each other online with this new medium. And essentially what happened is the blogosphere got morphed, it got uh, consumed, (laughs) it got sort of sucked into uh, social media through Facebook and Twitter, et cetera. That essentially uh, became a replacement for uh, this community of bloggers. And what we're seeing now is an evolution of the evolution and maybe a little bit of a retro thing going on. And here's what I want to say about that. Seeing retro movements happen is nothing new. There have been retro movements in art and creativity and education for centuries. I mean, like, look at the Renaissance. In many ways, the Renaissance was retro classicalism, you know, like rediscovering the art of of Greek and Roman antiquity and sort of taking that to the next level. You know, you look at a statue like David by Michelangelo, and that's really an evolution of statues that were being crafted you know, back in the early Roman Empire days, right? Like <laughs> it, 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 folks went back in order to move forward. And we see that time and time again in human history. People look back in order to move forward. Uh, Synthwave right now has completely changed a lot of what we think of when we think of electronic music and synthesizer music because folks went back to the 80s to bring forth new ideas of how to, you know, compose and promote uh, synthesizer based music. You know, shows like Stranger Things are a hit phenomenon (laughs) because it's looking back to the 80s in order to try something new and it, you know, sure, there's this nostalgia factor to it, but there's also something truly wonderful and new and unique about it as well. And I think we're seeing that. I think we're seeing this new social media movement emerge through the Fediverse, through Mastodon instances and these other platforms that can federate with each other. I think we're seeing something happen here that's pretty remarkable. And it's it's this sort of retro future movement in progress. How long that will last is anyone's guess, right? Because <laughs> uh, sure, things are growing like a weed here, but even even with the massive growth, it's looking like maybe we'll get to 10 million accounts and possibly not even get that far, but maybe we'll get to 10 million accounts uh, by New Year's 2023 in just a few weeks. Uh, it's possible, uh, but even so, like <laughs> 10 million accounts and not even all of them are necessarily active. So, But even, let's say every single account is active, 10 million active users, that's still a drop in the bucket compared to the big corporate social media platforms. So, you know, it's anyone's guess how far this will go. You know, will it eventually fizzle out again? Will it just kind of grow slowly over the next few years? Will the movement change direction and the way it feels as more people join? Will the culture change from what it is right now? Sure, it probably will, but we don't know how that will happen. Um, But right now, right now, folks, something truly awesome and magical is happening. And like Cheryl... (laughs) 
<laughs> I can't even remember the last time I've been so joyful and positive as I think about how I feel about online communication and using social media. You know, there's there's just so much to get excited about. There's so much to like. There's so much to be uh, enthusiastic about. And, and that's really, really something cool. One thing I've seen come up a lot uh, in terms of folks getting confused or frustrated trying to join Mastodon, quote unquote, is, you know, you can't just join Mastodon, right? You have to find an instance. You have to find a Mastodon instance that some group of people is running. And there's tons of them and more popping up every day. Here's my advice. If you don't know which instance to join, join several of them. (laughs) Try more than one. What have you got to lose? It's free. So just find several that seem kind of interesting. Join all of them. Check out the local feed there. Follow a few people in the local community for that instance and see how it feels. If things seem great, if you like the experience, then, you know, there you go. At least one of those instances is going to work for you. Like a number of months ago when I joined and, you know, this was before the huge wave, uh, Elon hadn't even bought Twitter, but just the whiff that he might buy Twitter, I was already like, I have one foot out the door here. <laughs> this is a bad idea. Uh, so uh, I found IndieWeb.Social and joined that instance. And I've been very happy. Uh, the guy that runs IndieWeb.Social is fantastic. Um, and uh, yeah, I'm just uh, really loving uh, being there. And of course, you know, obviously I get to follow tons of people on all these other instances it's federated with and everything's fine. Um, but uh, I'm not saying that you should join IndieWeb.Social. There's a bunch of others. Uh, one of the larger ones that's emerged for, you know, more of the nerd folks out there is Hackaderm, Hackaderm.io. Um, it's spelled like Pachyderm, but with H, Hackaderm. And um, I, I want to read you their sort of, uh, you know, you agree to their content policy sort of thing that you have to agree to when you try to sign up. And it's awesome because it's like, <laughs> it's so simple and makes so much sense, at least to me. Like, it just feels like, man, like, <laughs> if people are joining instances where this is the baseline of communication, this is great. This is just great. So I'm going to read it to you. First one, don't be a dick. No hacking, no violence, no fascism, no colonialism, no white supremacy, no religious extremism, no nationalism, no racism, no homophobia, no transphobia, safe space for LGBTQIA+, safe space for neurodivergent, ADHD, autism, etc. So if you agree to all that, Sign up for this instance, you're golden. <laughs> uh, I think that's fantastic. Uh, people will say, but we got to be tolerant of all these different views, uh, to which I respond, I don't. <laughs> I don't want to be tolerant towards racists. I don't want to be tolerant towards white supremacists. I don't want to be tolerant towards fascists. I don't want to be tolerant to people who proclaim violence. I don't want to be tolerant towards people who are transphobic. Like, I don't, I don't want to, I don't want to participate in that space. So call me somebody who isn't willing to, you know, 
cross the aisle or reach out a hand or have the conversation, whatever. I don't care. I don't want to deal with any of that stuff. I want to go online. I want to find people who are cool, talking about fun stuff, art, music, photography, some tech thing, whatever. And I don't want fascism thrown in my face. (laughs) I don't want racism thrown in my face. I don't want religious extremists trying to tell me how to live my life. I don't want any of that stuff. And that's why I'm so excited about uh, the promise of Mastodon here, because, uh, you know, there's the ability for people to join instances that have these kinds of strict policies, and they won't federate with other instances that, you know, blatantly violate these sorts of policies. They'll, they'll block instances where there's rampant racism or homophobia, or transphobia, or any of these other things, uh, and it's perfectly within their right to do so. Uh, And I think that is just fantastic. (laughs) As compared to what we're seeing on Twitter now, where lots of far-right extremist groups and accounts are coming back online on Twitter and posting just absolute garbage, just utter, utter muck. (laughs) The muck of Musk. I don't want to have anything to do with it. I'm... I'm glad to have left that behind. Another thing that's cool about instances is not only are there instances that, you know, have strict content policies like that, but there's instances that are region specific. So uh, I just heard about somebody who's starting up an Icelandic Mastodon instance. Uh, One of my favorite instances I've come across that's region-specific is (laughs) mastodon.scot. So if you're Scottish and you're excited about, you know, being Scottish or your identity is being Scottish, um, you know, you could join (laughs) mastodon.scot. Isn't that cool? Um, So, yeah, so there's, you know, there's a lot of instances out there now around, um, you know, different uh, sort of topics or... Or, um, I mean, just to, to go back on the thing I said earlier about um, synthwave music, there's a synthwave.social instance now, which is really cool because uh, one of the things I do is, is, you know, write and produce synthesizer music that is kind of in the synthwave genre, broadly speaking. Uh, so I created an account there, Yared at synthwave.social. And um, yeah started immediately connecting with other synthwave producers there and listening to their music and saying, oh, this is cool. That's really cool. And I got some likes and someone bought an album of mine <laughs> for the first time in a while. I mean, <laughs> this is great. So, uh, so yeah. So I just think like folks should feel free to, to check out different instances, maybe join several, uh, see what works for them. Just experiment. Like, <laughs> you don't have to be so fearful of, you know, like, oh my God, what do I do? How do I make a decision? What if I make the wrong decision? Like, it's not a big deal. Just have fun with it. Um, another thing that comes up sometimes is folks are like, you know, why do I have to do this goofy copy and paste stuff? Like, you know, I try to follow somebody over here on this instance and I have to copy their their, you know, profile handle and then paste it into this other thing over on my instance to follow them and blah, blah, blah. And I think it's just something that we'll get used to. And there's probably a better system and somebody will invent that and then we'll be glad to have that better system. But uh, I definitely like that better than sort of the previous way of doing it, which was like, oh, you want to follow this person? Well, type in your instance domain name here in this text field. And 
<laughs> I actually think the copy and paste thing's better. And you can do that with a lot of stuff. Like you can copy and paste statuses. Uh, you, you can copy and paste, you know, essentially anything that's like either a handle or, or an actual URL. Uh, you can just copy those and paste those in and then find stuff and, and then, you know, find people to follow, find statuses to like and all this kind of stuff. So um, I, I think it's just something we'll all collectively get used to. And I, I really don't think it's that big of a deal. Uh, my opinion around user experience stuff. <laughs> and yes, of course, I'm going to say this because I'm nerdy, but I I think I think there's like a there's like a class of people that like get really annoyed by what they perceive as bad UX on behalf of the normals, right? Like these people aren't the normals. They're 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 geeks who desperately don't want to annoy normals, so they get like hypersensitive to anything they think is a UX issue because oh my god, like it's gonna scare off all the normals. Um, and I think that's a little ridiculous, like. I've noticed in the work I do as a freelance web designer, who's, you know, a lot of my clients over the years are not very tech savvy at all, uh, sometimes very much not tech savvy at all. And I'm often amazed by like how difficult they make their own lives doing some particular thing with particular computer software systems, whatever, like be just because they don't know any better. Like, you know, like, for somebody like me who's super nerdy, I might go out of my way to find like, you know, the most streamlined way to like, oh, if I download this app and I learn this keyboard shortcut and then I do this action and then I use this conversion and blah, blah, like I can, you know, I can do this really complicated process with this data in, in a minute and I'm done. And then you talk to somebody and it's like they have this like bizarre elaborate process that takes them like a really long time and is really hard. And they're just like, oh, yeah, I just figured this thing out and I'm doing it. Like, yeah, it's fine. Whatever. <laughs> like they're less worried about that sort of thing. And then the nerd comes along and is like, oh, my God, this experience is terrible. And I can't believe you're having to do this. And this is, oh, my goodness, I, I got to show you like the right way to do this. So it's so much easier for you. <laughs> my perspective is that, quote unquote, normal people will actually very easily get used to weird, strange, complicated things as long as it's like, as long as they get it. Like once they get it, if they can remember it, they'll just do it and they'll just assume that's what you need to do. Like this is how computers work. <laughs> I'll get used to it. <laughs> I'll write it down in my notebook. Here's what I do. <laughs> and, and I'll just do it, right? So like if we tell everybody, here's how you follow somebody, you copy their handle over here, you paste it in over there, click a button and you're following them. Most people are gonna say, okay, sure. I, I honestly believe that. I think it's I think it's actually this class of nerds that are the most upset about this. I can't believe that there's not a better automated solution to this sort of thing. I can't believe I'm having to copy this text over here and paste it in over there. How dare you <laughs> tell me that is the user experience? Those are nerds complaining about that. I'm very convinced of that. <laughs> yeah, like, like if I tell one of my kids that that's what they need to do, like, they don't question it, right? They just like, okay, that's how you do it. <laughs> and they do it. Like, it, it, it's not even worth a second thought. 
<laughs> and I just say that because, like, you know, my kids are proxy for people who are, like, very motivated to learn how to do a thing because they think it's cool, right? Like, like if one of my girls thinks, you know, some game or some app or whatever is, seems cool, like, they'll learn whatever they need to learn to do it, right? The most bizarre stuff. <laughs> and, and it goes all the way into, like, you know, they're, they're having to teach me how Minecraft works. And it's the, it's the most esoteric stuff you could imagine. Like, oh, I found out how to craft this thing with these things. And I saw that on a YouTube video and blah, blah. And they're, they're like a fire hose <laughs> of information about Minecraft or whatever game it is. And they're teaching me this stuff. They're, they're the geeks <laughs> with the things they're interested in. So I just think like <laughs> most people who you know, are, are just, uh, you know, casual users on their smartphones, you know, tapping away on whatever, you know, if they're motivated enough to check out Mastodon and, and they find some cool people to follow and they think that's fun and like, oh, wow, like this photo is really neat and whatever, but, you know, and, and some of these rough edges that certain folks get really bent out of shape about, I think it's going to be a non-issue. I really do. All right. Uh, that was a rant, but uh, we'll move right along here. <laughs> um, I was going to talk a little bit about like iPhone apps or how I use Mastodon on Mac or iPad, but I think I'll save that for another episode. Um, one other point I'd like to make here before we kind of round out the, the Mastodon segment here is um, I do think something that is very important that uh, some folks are... are trying to bring to the surface here in the conversation is uh, making sure that other voices are are listened to here in the Fediverse, you know, listening to black voices, for example, listening to women, um, you know, listening to people who, uh, you know, maybe come at computing in general or internet communication in general from a very different point of view. Um, you know, if, if, it, if it just... If the Fediverse is dominated just by, you know, white male computer geeks, uh, and that's, you know, the bulk of the people dominating the conversation, then, you know, <laughs> we're doomed. <laughs> uh, you know, we need to make sure that everybody is, it feels welcome and, and, you know, everyone has a seat at the table. On the other hand, I, I do think it's important to make this point, which is, uh, we do want to make sure that the sort of, you know, floss people, aka free slash libre open source software, uh, you know, we need to make sure like the, the, the nerds who are actually building web technology, open web technology, open source software, we need to make sure that they don't get completely sidelined like what has happened in the past. And I'm going to go back to the Steve Jobs prediction uh, that he made in the 90s about, you know, when tech companies start to go bad. And he was alluding to companies like Microsoft. And it's like when when the engineers get replaced by the sales guys, right? <laughs> the, the, the people who are actually creatively building tools and technologies get sidelined by the salespeople, the business people, etc. Um, and he saw that as, as a slippery slope. And, uh, yeah, I think, I, I think we have a chance here to, with the Fediverse, to avoid what has happened before. Like, you know, take Twitter, for example. Like, Twitter started out as this very interesting technical idea of, like, 
How do we make it really easy to share short messages online? It's almost like a replacement for SMS at the beginning of it. Um, and it, 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 Twitter was very technical in its focus. It was solving technical problems for people that you know wanted to get certain things done online. And then it kind of took off and this community built itself up around Twitter. And the community, in many cases, invented what became Twitter, right? Like the community invented hashtags and the community invented referencing other people with at whatever their username is. And like, there were a lot of conventions, RT for retweet. Like there were a lot of conventions in Twitter that the community fostered and nurtured to, to, you know, build out this experience. And then essentially the sales guys came along (laughs) and tried to turn Twitter into a mega huge business and never really succeeded at that. And that was always a problem. And Whatever you think about Jack Dorsey, and he seems like kind of a weird guy at this point, but, uh, you know, and and now I just really can't forgive him at all for palling around with Elon Musk. But, you know, for all for all the downsides of Jack Dorsey, I think the one thing Jack Dorsey always got about Twitter was Twitter is only as good as it is a technology solution, almost like internet plumbing, you know, like something as as fundamental to the fabric of society as the electric grid or something like that. Like he always saw it through that lens. He never liked looking at Twitter through the lens of of uh, corporate media publishing, you know, advertising revenue, blah, 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 like all the stuff that Twitter kept thinking it should evolve into. Like that, that wasn't where Jack Dorsey ever wanted to take it. And I think his instincts were very right there. Um, unfortunately, <laughs> you know, I think what some people were hoping the Elon Musk purchase would be like, oh, here comes a guy who's a technologist and who's an engineer and he's going to bring that engineering discipline to Twitter. No, <laughs> that's not what's happening at all. Elon Musk is a, is a very different character, you know, and again, like, I don't want to get into all that. But uh, unfortunately, you know, if, if anyone was expecting like, oh, the, the future of Twitter now that Elon's taking over is it's going to get back to its roots as a as a technological platform. Like, nah, that's not going to happen. <laughs> all right, folks. Um, so before we round out today's episode, I want to go through just a few news items that uh, stood out to me in this segment I'm calling What's New in the News? This first news article is from the Washington Post, uh, and it's this article that uh, is in the quote-unquote opinion section, (laughs) which is good because to me it's virtually nothing but opinion. It, It tries to present itself in the guise of like, here's statistics and here's concerning data on whatever, but... It's really just some some person's opinion, and I think it's a little bit silly. But I'll read you one of the quotes from the article. Talking about this shift of people in America, you know, spending a lot more time alone. Like, they're not out with friends, they're not out with families, they're just, like, by themselves, presumably, in their house or whatever, just, I don't know, playing a game or doing something online, watching Netflix, I don't know, but being alone, right? (laughs) So this quote says... It is too soon to know the long-term consequences of this shift, but it seems safe to assume that the decline of our social lives is a worrisome development. 
Spending less time with friends is not a best practice by most standards, and it might contribute to other troubling social trends. Isolation, worsening mental health, particularly among adolescents, rising aggressive behavior, and violent crime. Americans rate activities as more meaningful and joyful when friends are present. Friends and social connections build on themselves and produce memories and fellowship. They also boost health and lead to better economic outcomes. Okay, there's a lot to unpack there. (laughs) I have never felt more lonely than when I'm around other people in certain situations. (laughs) So let, let me... Let me tell you what I'm thinking here. There, there's, there's being alone and there's feeling lonely. And people make this uh, equation far too often that if you're alone, you must feel lonely. I don't think that's true at all. I think people feel lonely for different reasons at different times. And sometimes people feel the loneliness when they're around people that they're having you know, really, truly difficult times with, you know, in terms of, of their relationship or in terms of, you know, how they feel they should behave when they're around these people, right? <laughs> like, ha- having been in a, a marriage that grew increasingly toxic and then having to, you know, seemingly mutually dissolve the marriage and that went from seemingly okay to very bad. And thankfully, post-divorce things are okay now. But there was a time when things got very bad. And I felt so much more lonely in the middle of this disintegrating relationship than I do now, when presumably, I spend a lot more time alone. (laughs) I'm happier now, alone, but not lonely Whereas before, I was not alone, but I was lonely. Those two things should not be equated. And and that's my big problem with this article. And my other big problem is, I actually think more people should learn how to be happy alone. I actually think that's, in and of itself, a big problem in our modern society. People have to have constant stimulation from, you know, any number of things. And maybe some of that is technological kind of things. But like, I think what I'm trying to say is like, if you can just take a hike in the woods by yourself for several hours, completely alone, and feel completely happy, I I think that is incredibly good. Like you should be able to know how to do that. And you should be able to do that with some frequency. Uh, And a lot of people don't. Like a lot of people just are are always on the go and always getting involved in, you know, they have work, they have family, they have their friends groups, they have their church things, whatever. There's there's this, there's that. Like I, I've been there before myself. Like I've I've been in situations where because of my schedule, I'm around lots of people all the time. Uh and for me at least, with my personality, uh that gets so tiring and so frustrating and so stressful after a while. Like, I need lots of alone time. Uh, and I didn't know this about myself when, when I was younger. Like, I didn't, I didn't fully grasp, um, like, how much joy I could get being around other people 
if I also got lots of alone time, like like there's a corollary there, like the more truly alone time I have to recharge, to think, to dream, the, the happier I then am when I'm around a bunch of other people, whether that's my kids or going out to coffee with a friend or, you know, going to some kind of, uh, you know, civic group or lecture or concert, whatever, uh, you know, traveling, like I'm so much happier around other people when I have had lots of time to be alone, to get that time to recharge and to regroup and to make sure I'm on the right track and I'm hitting my creative priorities and all this kind of stuff. So I think just a cursory look at data of like how much time people spend alone versus with friends or whatever. And just from like some raw data points coming up with this entire theory of like, oh my gosh, this is bad for society. I, I think it's kind of absurd. <laughs> uh, but that's just my take on it. If you disagree, I would love to hear from you. Uh, let's have that conversation. Um, all right. So moving on to the next one, I'll try to make this quick. Uh, on the Pivot podcast with Kara Swisher and Scott Galloway, uh, they recently talked about uh, just kind of like their thoughts on parenting and their philosophy around parenting. And and the, the funny title of the episode is How to Raise the Next Scott Galloway, <laughs> which I thought was funny. Um, but uh, yeah, I actually thought like it's not so much that I found what they had to say themselves about parenting was super interesting, but it was more just like the topics they touched on were interesting topics. It was a bunch of interesting topics and some questions and some thoughts from, uh, you know, audience members or folks they know that they kind of wove into the podcast. And it was really one of the most thought-provoking podcasts I've heard in quite some time around parenting, and and I really liked it. And, and one of the things they did say, which I very much agree with, is if you're very worried a lot of the time that you're going to screw up your kids, you're not going to screw up your kids. <laughs> <laughs> right? Like, like the very fact that you spend lots of time kind of, you know, thinking through how to be a good parent, even if you feel guilty, like, oh, I'm not a very good parent or whatever, like feeling guilty about not being a very good parent and thinking about it a lot and, and try, trying to be a good parent, like is in and of itself a sign that you are a good parent. Like you're, you're doing fine. Your kids are going to be fine. I think I... I think I wrote an article. I'll have to look this up. Maybe I can get, can get this in the show notes. Um, but I wrote an article a few years ago. It's essentially that of like, <laughs> it's very unlikely that you're going to screw up your kids. You know, the, the, the people that turn out to be you know, really, truly awful parents are people that are just so completely self-absorbed into their problems or they have like really bad problems with addictions or, you know, whatever it is like to cause them to be really emotionally unstable or unavailable and and if they're if they're in that state if they're really emotionally unstable or unavailable you know they're not spending a lot of time you know carefully and thoughtfully contemplating how they are raising their kids and what they can do to better raise their kids right <laughs> they're not in that mindset uh because you know their life is is in and of itself a total mess um so yeah i just i thought that was kind of inspiring and um yeah, I, I don't know how many of you listening to this are yourselves parents, but if you are parents, uh, yeah, let's let's join hands and be in solidarity together as parents and not worry so much that we're going to screw up our kids because 
I don't think we are. <laughs> um, all right. And then finally, this last uh, item here is a link to a video around um, kind of the, the, the rise of internet censorship around the world and, and trying to control internet access and internet communications. And it's about how, you know, 35 and counting countries seem to be in process of leaving the global internet, essentially, which is very concerning. Um, and I'm also linking to this video on Nebula rather than YouTube, because I think Nebula is really awesome. Uh, and I have one thing to say about Nebula, but before I do, uh, just about this video, um, I, I do think there's a little bit of a nuance here, because I do think it's good for countries to enforce trying to have more domestic hosting of content and having more homegrown services. So like... Like if other countries, for example, are, are very nervous about letting American companies come in to run a bunch of online services and have stuff hosted in America for, you know, the citizens in their country, like I agree with them. Like they should be worried. <laughs> they should not want American com companies to just come in and run everything. Like that's that's very bad. I, I think it's very bad for, say, Facebook to just waltz into a new country and, you know, be the Internet media social provider, et cetera, et cetera, and not even host, you know, user data locally and all that kind of stuff. Like, I think all of that is kind of bad. So I don't mind that countries want to try to have policies to encourage, you know, let's host content locally. Let's provide more services locally. You know, let's exercise more local control over, you know, keep. Uh, key core internet infrastructure here. Like, I think in principle, that's good. I think that's a good thing. But that doesn't mean that I support governments installing internet firewalls, you know, like the Great Firewall of China sort of stuff, you know, trying to censor content and apps for coming from around the world, like any of these sorts of draconian measures to like stifle or or cancel or block uh, communications and and monitoring everything, et cetera, et cetera. Like, I don't agree with that. <laughs> obviously, obviously, I don't agree with that. Uh, I think an open and free web must be an immovable goal of computer users everywhere, right? Like, <laughs> we should not be uh, accepting of of, you know, government level entities, you know, deciding, uh, we'll let this website through and we'll block that website. And this website, we're going to monitor everything that's happening on that website and in, in order to block the things we don't like and blah, blah, blah. Like that is bad. That is very bad. So, so yeah. So again, like this is very nuanced, right? Like good for countries to want to have more domestic hosting and domestic services, but bad if they're just going to outright start moderating and blocking whatever they don't like. <laughs> so we don't like that. Final point here, as I mentioned, that video was a link to the video on Nebula. Uh, I really think Nebula is cool. <laughs> it's well worth $5 a month or whatever to become a Nebula subscriber um, because uh, it's a company that's literally being run by creators and it's for creators and it's helping creators get paid and i think that's fantastic and it also it gives them an out <laughs> if youtube starts going off the deep end these creators that are on nebula you know really have a nice service and it's already profitable and it's not like 
it hasn't taken in a bunch of VC money or anything like that. Like it's it's been mostly bootstrapped, which is fantastic. And the crazy thing is, here, here's the crazy thing. Uh, I just recently discovered that Nebula has a few original podcasts, like, you know, like truly like this podcast is a Nebula original podcast and you can only subscribe to it if you're a member of Nebula. But they're not doing what these awful companies like Spotify are doing. <laughs> it's like this just lives in the Spotify app. It's a quote unquote podcast it's a premium quote unquote podcast that you only get if you use the Spotify app or whatever. That's not a podcast, folks. <laughs> a podcast is a series of audio files that you can download by virtue of the fact that you have subscribed to an RSS feed that they provide. That's what a podcast is. And that's what the Nebula original podcasts do. I, I was shocked. <laughs> I was like, wait, this is actually how it works? They provide every Nebula member with a personalized RSS feed URL, and you can copy that RSS feed URL and paste it into whatever you want, uh, Pocket Casts, Overcasts, the Apple Podcasts app, whatever, and, and then you're listening to that Nebula original podcast that you get because you're a subscriber in your own podcast app. And that is the only way you can do in original podcasts, in my opinion. If you're a company that's creating original podcasts that are behind a paywall, you have to do it that way. You cannot silo people into your own app and only your own app. That is not a podcast. <laughs> uh, all right, so I think that's it for today's episode. There was a lot of stuff in there, pretty action-packed, so uh, thank you for making it this far. Uh, coming next week, um, I'm actually going to be talking even more about podcasting, and in, in specific terms, I'm going to talk about video podcast, which I didn't even realize was still a thing, and then only recently discovered that, yes, it's actually still a thing, video podcasts. And I mean actual podcasts, not just somebody putting something on YouTube and calling it a video podcast, but real video podcasts is still a thing. Not every podcast player will work. You need to get ones that support video. Uh, so I'll talk about that and also talk about uh, some, some front ends, quote unquote, to YouTube. So you could watch YouTube and perhaps even generate video podcasts out of YouTube channels and that way get content without actually using YouTube proper. So I'm gonna get into all of that cool video podcasty stuff in the next episode. All right, folks, thanks for tuning in once again to Fresh Fusion. My name is Jared White. You can find me as always on jaredwhite.com. And until next time, bye-bye.